Jesus is the master teacher. When he speaks, we must listen. And what he says, we must learn. Throughout the entirety of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is presented as a teacher. Whether he is doing so by using discourse or by presenting parables or by answering questions from his followers, he is sharing truth. In fact, we could say that he conveys truth in a way that no one else could. In the passage that we're going to consider this morning, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 18, we find Jesus teaching in a variety of ways, whether it is through direct discourse, through the use of a parable, or by answering a question from his followers. And the result, what Jesus teaches us about salvation is indeed a lesson that we should and that we must learn. And so our focus today is that we should learn from the Lord about salvation. Before we get to Luke 13, however, there are a few other points that I think are important for us to note. It is not uncommon in the book of Luke for Jesus to be mentioned in conjunction with salvation. Now, this was true even before he came to the earth. Look, for example, to Luke chapter 1 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 1. And notice in the midst of Zacharias' prophecy what the text says in verse 68. The Bible says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Jesus is indeed the one who would come and visit his people. He is indeed the one who would provide salvation, the one who came from the house of David. After the birth of Jesus, when he was presented in the temple, Simeon, who was there, said this of him. In verse 30, of chapter 2, the text says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Jesus was that light. He was indeed the salvation. And of course, Jesus himself acknowledged that. In Luke 19, in verse 10, he told Zacchaeus and his household the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. 
Salvation is associated with Jesus throughout the course of the book of Luke, whether before he even came on the scene or shortly after his birth or even during his physical ministry. But it's also significant to note that the book of Luke focuses upon the kingdom of God. In the fourth chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus went about preaching the kingdom. Verse 43 of that text, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. Jesus, the one who is connected with man's salvation, preaches the kingdom of God. In the seventh chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus discusses the nature of God's kingdom. In verse 28 of that text, he says, For I said to you, among those who were born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. As great as John was, it was greater to be a part of God's kingdom. And Jesus declared that his actions looked forward to the coming of that kingdom. In the 11th chapter, when his enemies accused him of performing the casting out of demons by the power of Satan himself, Jesus said in verse 18 of that text, If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, the very actions in which Jesus performed, the things in which he engaged himself, helped men to see the coming of God's kingdom. And so as you read Luke this month, I want you to notice the various times in which salvation is mentioned either directly or in conjunction with Jesus. And I want you to notice all of the various times that that short but powerful phrase, kingdom of God, is mentioned. Luke talks about both of those throughout the course of his book. Now, it's not surprising to me, and it should not surprise you, that the individuals who heard Jesus preach on a regular basis made the connection between the concept of salvation on the one hand and the kingdom of God on the other. And after Jesus discussed the kingdom of God in our passage in Luke chapter 13, the individuals who were present asked him, Lord, are there few who will be saved? There is indeed a connection between salvation and the kingdom of God. And our passage in Luke, the 13th chapter, will help us see that perhaps a bit more clearly. So if you will, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. And let's notice what takes place in this text beginning in verse 18. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. The Bible says, then he said, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven 
which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Jesus uses two common occurrences, something that individuals would relate to to help to describe the nature of the kingdom of God. There were no doubt individuals in his audience who had sown mustard seeds. They recognized the smallness of that seed, and yet they also recognized what would result from their efforts. And there were also no doubt women in the audience who had placed a bit of leaven in a measure of meal and who noted the effect of that very thing. The parables teach us that the kingdom of God could start off in a very small way and grow to be something that was very large indeed. We understand that, and perhaps there is really even no need of pressing the point. But there is something especially significant about the placement in Luke of these two particular parables. Both of these parables are used to emphasize the growth of the kingdom into something great from a very small or a humble beginning. Why does Luke place the parables here at this juncture? Well, there are several things to keep in mind. First of all, Jesus, as Luke 13 takes place, is in the midst of his journey toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 tells us, knowing full well why he was going, where he was going. More about that in just a moment. And yet many of the people who heard Jesus during his ministry did not understand what was taking place. They saw him perform various miracles. Perhaps they had seen him cast out demons. Perhaps they had seen him heal those who were lame. But they did not understand the connection between an action that might help one individual and actions that would help all individuals. And just prior to Jesus reciting these parables in Luke's context, there is an occasion in which he has gone to the synagogue and he has healed one individual of an infirmity. And someone might say, well, that's a very small thing, and it's something that helps one individual, but how does that action help all of us? It's not insignificant that Jesus says that his small actions will lead to great things. And of course, after this discussion of the kingdom, there is the discussion about salvation, a point that we'll get to in just a few moments. What he ultimately is saying then is that this kingdom of God, which would indeed begin like a mustard seed, very small, would be sufficient to provide relief for all of humanity. Jesus would indeed do what he promised. Now there's one other thing about this passage that is important. It is the fulfillment, likewise, of prophecy. I want you to hold your place here in Luke 13 and go back to Daniel chapter 2 in your Bibles for just a moment. Daniel chapter 2.
In the second chapter of Daniel, we read about a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. It is the dream of a great statue with a head of gold, with a chest of silver, with a midriff of brass, with legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay. Normally, when we talk about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we emphasize the identity of each component of that particular statue, whether it is the nation of Babylon or the Medes and the Persians or the Greeks or eventually the Romans. But there's another detail that has great bearing upon our discussion from Luke 13. I want you to notice what the text says beginning in verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It is that stone that anticipates the words of Jesus in Luke the 13th chapter. A stone which is made without hands, which has the ability to crush a great image and then becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth is the precursor of the kingdom of God, which is like the mustard seed when it is planted, but then grows to be great. Daniel later explains that in verses 44 and 45. He says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall uh, break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. It shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. Jesus provides a forecast for the coming kingdom. It will start small, just like his individual actions in helping others, but it will grow to become great. Now, after he tells these two parables, Luke provides us with a description that we must not miss. He tells us about Jesus' determination. Look at verse 22. The text says, and he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Why mention that? Is it just a historical detail? Does Luke want to simply give us markers whereby we will know about the progress of Jesus? Or is he really trying to tell us something else? The fact that this idea that Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem is not just stated, but that it is restated time and again, hence toward the significance of it. I mentioned a moment ago Luke, the ninth chapter and the 51st verse. That is a turning point in the book. It is at that moment that Jesus leaves his Galilean ministry behind and determines that he will indeed go to Jerusalem, that he will indeed face whatever lies ahead of him there. 
one who understood very well what his life was going to be like. In that verse, Luke writes, it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus did that knowing full well what was going to take place. In Luke, the 18th chapter, in the 31st verse, he took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and insulted and spit upon, and they will scourge him, and they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus knew why he was going to Jerusalem, and yet he went freely, knowing that individuals needed the blood that he would shed upon the cross. There's one other statement in our context that also helps us to appreciate this. A little later on in Luke 13, verse 31, that same day some of the Pharisees came to him, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, evidently, Jesus was journeying toward Jerusalem on this occasion through Herod's territory. This is the same Herod who had killed John the baptizer. Herod did not like what John taught about his marriage. He did not like what Jesus was teaching about his marriage. He would seek Jesus' life just as he sought John's life. And the people tried to warn Jesus, get away. Herod wants to take your life. And in response, Jesus said, Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. In other words, I have work to do, and Herod will not stop me. And Herod did not stop Jesus, for he was determined to do his work. And so our passage provides for us a forecast of the kingdom, a picture of Jesus' determination, and a discussion, very importantly, of the opportunity for salvation. This is where I want to turn our attention now. Look at chapter 13, beginning in verse 23. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who will be saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you who work iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south and sit in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first. And there are first who will be last. Now in this short section of scripture, you find a couple of very important thoughts. Number one, you find Jesus describing certain requirements 
for salvation. And number two, you find him talking about the results. First, about the requirements. Number one, if you would be saved, you must enter by the narrow gate. They have asked the question in verse 23, Lord, are there few who are saved? And in response to that question, Jesus says in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Now surely that language reminds you of what Jesus said elsewhere on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew the 7th chapter, he talks about this very concept. In verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And just a few verses later in that passage, he goes on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven... Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This idea of entering by the narrow gate is the idea of complying with the terms that God has set. It is living in the way that honors God. It is living in a way that follows the will of God. It is living obediently. It is living in submission to God's plan. But there's something else that Luke does in chapter 13 with Jesus' words that I want you to notice in verse 24. He does not contrast the narrow gate and the broad way. He does something else. He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will enter and will not be able. This narrow gate is a gate that many people will seek to enter, but they will be kept from doing so, hindered. And so if we're talking about the requirements for salvation, not only should we say that one must enter by the narrow gate, which means that one must do the will of the Father who is in heaven, but we can also say that one must not be hindered. Now for just a moment, stop and consider what it is that hinders an individual from being able to go through the narrow gate. There are some people, according to Jesus' own words, who will be hindered by their own desires. Do you remember the parable of the sower? The seed that falls among thorns that springs up and is choked by the desires and the cares and the riches of this world? When Paul wrote to Timothy, he told him that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There will be some people who will be hindered from entering the narrow gate, not because they don't seek to enter the narrow gate, but because of their desires for the things of this world. That's why John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world, verses 15 and following. But one's love for the world and one's desire for money or desire for physical things isn't the only thing that will hinder some individuals. There will be some individuals who will be hindered from entering the narrow gate, even those who are seeking to enter the narrow gate because they were unwilling to obey the gospel. 
They were unwilling to submit their life to the plan of God. They are like King Agrippa who said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. But almost, friend, is not enough. It's not enough for an individual to even seek to enter the narrow gate. An individual has to comply with the terms of God's will. And there are some who will be unable to enter this narrow gate because they are tied to tradition. And yet Peter tells us that we're not redeemed by corruptible things like silver or gold. From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There will be individuals who are hindered, whether by their desires or by their hesitation or by their traditions. But it is possible to enter into the narrow gate, complying simply with the terms of God's plan. Do not wait until it's too late. In this passage, some came once the door had been shut. They appealed to the master, open the door for us, like the foolish virgins in Matthew, the 25th chapter. But the door had been closed. And the master did not know them. What are the results from this passage? Well, some will indeed be cast out. Look at verse 28 of the text. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. There will be people who will be saved and there will be people who will be lost The picture that Jesus paints of salvation is clear. He's not talking about universal salvation. He's not even talking about salvation for all those who attempted to get in through the narrow gate. He's talking about salvation for those who obeyed His will. And there will be some who will sit at the table in the kingdom. Luke chapter 13 and verse 29. And indeed, he says, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. It reminds us of the table that our Lord will prepare for us in the presence of our enemies. Psalm 23 and verse 5. And there will be a reversal of roles. Those who believe themselves to be first will be last. And those who believe themselves to be last will be first. It is reminiscent of Jesus' parable in Luke the 18th chapter where the Pharisee thanks God that he's not like other men. And the publican would not even raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What do we find in this passage? You find a forecast of the kingdom of God. Something that will begin very small, but will grow to be great. You find the determination of Jesus who was set to go to Jerusalem and die for your sins. You find the opportunity for salvation. And then lastly from this text, you find Jesus' desire. Look at verses 34 and 35. The text continues and it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together 
as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you will not see me until the time when, uh, comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One of the most thrilling thoughts that you and I can ever entertain is the thought that Jesus wants you to be saved. Aren't you thankful for that? How thankful we should be that the Son of God desires our salvation. But how sad it could be for Jesus to say of us what he says about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus wants you to be saved. But you must be willing. I want you to see from this text that there are consequences for the rejection of Jesus. And yet there's hope. The last statement in verse 35, until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know where that statement is found? As we conclude this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. And I'd like to read a very familiar section, passages that you will remember from this beautiful psalm. Beginning in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have been blessed, you from the house of the Lord. You think about what Jesus is doing in Luke the 13th chapter. When he concludes this section by saying, until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You have the opportunity to accept Jesus for who he claims to be as the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. You have the opportunity to be obedient to the gospel. You have the opportunity to do what he is asking you to do. To enter by the narrow gate and obey the will of the Father. You have the opportunity to have the kingdom of God at your disposal. To be a part of the glorious kingdom that started from a very small beginning to a very large and powerful influence. But you must decide to obey Jesus, our Lord.
Learn from the Lord about salvation. Enter by the narrow gate. Obey His way. Do not be hindered. Submit to His will. Do not wait. Obey Him today.